Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verses 27. And then we're going to be going through chapter 9, verse 1. As always, the words will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. And also, I'm reading in the NASB version. But uh, anyways, let's read this together. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. Then Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do the people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And then he continued by questioning them, the disciples, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And then he warned them to tell no one about him. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed after three days and rise again. And then he was stating the matter very plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. And Jesus then summoned the crowd with disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who will not be standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together really quickly and then jump right into the word. Father, would you show us this text? Spirit, would you speak in and through me? Your word alive in this place. Help us to journey with you to the cross as you are guiding us as you did once many, many years ago. So Father, we pray that you would indeed teach us, show us, and help us to experience you the more and more in this place so we may have life and life to the full, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, here we are, another year and another Lent, another six weeks before Good Friday and Easter, in which we anticipate, of course, the day Jesus is crucified, and then, of course, the day that he rises from the grave three days later. But unlike Christmas and other seasons of the year, where we as a church do a really good job of anticipating Christmas, we as a church do a really good job of getting ready for it and doing all these things, right, getting excited about the time Jesus, gets, uh, Jesus is born, each and every single year, it seems like for us, at least for Holy Week, the, the week where Jesus is crucified and buried, it almost catches us by surprise. And so Pastor Goose and I, we began to think, we began to think and then we all, I think we thought, what do we do and how do we help all of us to anticipate and get excited for Jesus' death and resurrection? Because according to the scripture, the cross, the moment where Jesus died, is the moment where we see Jesus' glory most clearly. Which then means, in some ways, that the cross is more significant and important to Jesus' life than Christmas, the day he was born. And so as Pastor Goose and I thought about this and we were discussing this, we thought the, most, the best way to help all of us, right, the best way for us to really anticipate Good Friday and really when it gets there, we're like, man, we can't wait for Easter to come is to do this thing called journeying with Jesus to the cross. Because make no mistake, Jesus knew 100% that he was going to the cross. He knew 100% when he was going to be killed, how and by whom he was going to be killed. And the passage we just read makes that absolutely clear. 
And so for this uh, Lenten series, for the rest of these six weeks until we get to Easter Sunday, we're going to begin here in chapter 8 in verse Mark because this is the moment in the chapter uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark where the narrative, the story turns from who is Jesus, what is he, where did he come from, what is he all about, all those questions to what does it mean that Jesus is indeed himself. In other words, as Peter says, the disciples and the others recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who they've been waiting for. What does it mean for us and everybody that Jesus is the Messiah? That's the question we want to ask this Lenten season. What does it mean for you that Jesus is Christ, that he's God, he's your Savior, whatever it is that you call him, what does it mean? Because in this chapter, and, and Jesus through and through makes it very crystal clear And this is what Jesus is saying, and I think this is what he's saying to us that we need to listen to. Jesus is the king. I am the king, he says, but I'm not an ordinary king. I am a king going to a cross. Jesus' identity as the Messiah, Savior, Lord, is one that includes the cross. And so we want to journey with him as he is going to the cross. And we hope that as we do, we will see more clearly who Jesus is and what difference that makes in all of our lives who follow him. As one day said, if the cross is real to you, then your heart is stirred to pray for Nicholas Cruz this morning. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah and that being the Messiah means that he goes to the cross? So let's break down the story really quickly and give you kind of the background so that we can jump into these kind of understandings of what it is. If you notice in the story, did you notice that there's a kind of a testy exchange between Peter and Jesus? where Peter and Jesus are rebuking each other, right? Here's what's going on. Jesus and the disciples are in Caesarea Philippi. In modern days in the U.S., Caesarea Philippi might as well have been Las Vegas. It's where anything goes, pretty much. Caesarea Philippi was known for religious plurality, which is a very fancy word that anyone and pretty much everyone believed in a lot of different things. You believed whatever that you wanted to believe, and anything, therefore, went. So in this city, Jesus asked the disciples, interestingly, hey, who do the people out there say that I am? And as you might expect in Las Vegas or in a city like that, people, you know, they're going to say lots of different things. That Jesus is whatever this, this, and this, and this. You're going to have a lot of different opinions. And indeed, the disciples tell them a lot of things. John the Baptist, Elijah, prophets, whatever. They tell you a lot of things. And then right after he says that, interestingly, he turns to them, the disciples, looks at them in the eye. And he basically says in Greek, the Texas version, who do y'all say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter a likely spokesperson, very loud mouth, like me. I'm named after him after all, right? He takes up the courage, and I think he speaks upon everybody's behalf, and he says, you, you're the Christ. Christ literally means the anointed one. And the people understood it back then as to mean the Messiah, the king to end all kings, the king who would defeat evil once and for all and make everything right again. And notice that Jesus doesn't reject this title. He claims to everyone, ah, yeah, you're right. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. But then he tells them, interestingly, hey, don't tell anyone that I am indeed the Christ. And then right after this, to the disciples who've just recognized he's the Messiah, the one to come, end everything, and fix everything, all of a sudden then he does something crazy. He says, I must suffer, I must be rejected, and I must be killed to rise three days later. And then Peter, he goes crazy. And then Peter pulls Jesus aside and he goes, no. The word to rebuke is the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes demons. It's the strongest language. He's basically cursing at Jesus and saying, no, 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 you don't lost your mind. And then Jesus, uncharacteristically, 
then rebukes Peter right back and takes it up a notch and calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. That's what I say. Then be fighting words from Jesus. So you got to ask, what is making Peter so angry? I mean, like, think about it. Jesus did say, I will rise again in three days. I had a student one time ask me, he's like, why is it a big deal that Jesus dies when everyone knows he's going to rise again in three days? And so he does say, I'm going to rise. It's not like he omits that part so everyone gets upset. And some people like to suggest that Peter didn't hear it, like he's kind of, he has selective hearing, but I don't think that's the case. They all heard Jesus say it. But there's a thing that he heard that makes him just super pissed off. And it's this one word, the title of our sermon, I must suffer. And the way that the Greek language is constructed, you should be able to read the sentence, not only must I, he must suffer, I must be rejected, and I must be killed. You can put that word in each and every single one of those constructions as the way the Greek is worded. And by using the word must, what Jesus is suggesting is that he's planning on dying. Voluntarily so. Every fiber of a being knows that he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's not going to be, you know, like accidentally captured by the Roman soldiers and then put to death. No, no, I'm planning on dying and I'm going to do so voluntarily. They're going to take me and I'm going to let them. And this is what makes Peter so mad because it must have seemed to him that Jesus has indeed lost his mind. Because ever since Peter was a little boy, every Jew would have sat down at their father or their mother's knee and they would have been taught that a Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes, they're going to make everything right again. Anytime you have a bad leader in a country or in a world, you get taught that someone's going to come and make everything straight. The Roman government was going to get overthrown. The Jews are going to be the chosen people. Everyone is going to be okay. And though there are texts in the Old Testament suggesting that there's a suffering servant like Isaiah 53, nobody ever thought that that person was the Messiah. And so this was a complete turn of events for Peter that just didn't make any sense. And then Jesus takes it up even one further notch, as he always does. He uses the term son of man, which is his favorite title for himself. It comes from Daniel 7. But the son of man in Daniel 7 comes down from the heavens on a majestic cloud, and he comes to judge and rule everyone. And he says, the son of man, this majestic cloud that you think that I am, this man coming down with power, must suffer, must be rejected, and must be killed. And Peter is having none of it. Because, honestly, how is the Messiah supposed to rule if he dies? How do you defeat evil and make everything right when you die, a.k.a. you lose, to evil? Because death is evil, everyone thought. And to be clear, I want to make one thing absolutely crystal clear. This story would be very different if it turned out like a modern movie that you and I would watch. If Jesus was planning on storming into Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman government, right? He had this army. He was going to do this thing. He had a plan. He's like, okay, we're going to go in there. He had the battle plans laid out. The architecture, you know, kind of in the middle of the night. They're in the war room, like planning this and doing all of this. And then he goes in there, guns blazing, not guns blazing, swords blazing. Back in the day, they didn't have guns, right? Goes in there with weapons blazing, and all of a sudden, he gets captured heroically. And then he gets captured, and then he gets put to trial, and then he dies, and he gets killed, and then he rises again. While it would be heroic, it would not be the story we have and it would not mean anything to us. Because getting caught in the battle is not planning on dying willingly. It's Jesus saying, I've come to die. I must die. I have to die. It is a necessity. I cannot not die. Basically, I think Jesus is saying is, I am not Jesus without 
the cross. The Messiah, he ain't the Messiah without the cross. I must suffer, I must be rejected, and I must be killed. It is the way it must be. So the question for us is why? God could have done anything. He could have carried out any way he wanted to, and this was the way he had to do it, he tells us. So the question is why? And this is a question for us this Lenten season. If Jesus is king, if he is the Messiah, why is he a king that has to go to a cross and die the way that he does? And make no mistake, verse 32, it says, Jesus stated the matter plainly, as cool as the other side of the pillow. Why? And here are the four reasons, and we'll list them. They'll be on the screen. First, without the cross, Jesus can't actually forgive our sins. Reason number two, without the cross, death actually isn't defeated. Reason number three, without the cross, true love doesn't exist in reality. And without the cross, number four, we aren't actually fully free. If Jesus is Jesus without the cross, none of these things happen. We're not forgiven. Death isn't defeated. We don't know what true love is. It doesn't exist. And we aren't actually free. So let's go through these one by one. Because for me, these are absolutely the most beautiful things that you could hear this morning. The fact that Jesus says he must die is the most beautiful thing you could have heard this morning here in this place because it changes everything about who we are as Christians. Let's go through these. First, without the cross, Jesus cannot actually pardon our sins. Pretend that someone wrongs you or breaks something of yours that you own. Okay? They backstab you, they hurt you, or they just break something of yours. When this happens, very clearly, a debt is created. right? And you... As a person who has been backstabbed or hurt, or someone whose stuff was broken, you, as the victim, have two choices, right? You either make the person who broke your stuff or took something away from you, you make them pay, or you forgive them and eat the cost. Either you pay or the other one pays, or someone has to pay. For instance, okay, if Pastor Goose walked into my house and in an angry, let's say I beat him at you know, Monopoly or something, and then he got really pissed off, and then he threw something at my TV and he breaks my TV, then there's two choices. Goose, pay up. I need a new TV. Or I say, it's all right. I got you. Throw the TV away, and then I go out and buy myself a new one. Relationally speaking, things can be like this. Someone robs me of an opportunity. Someone takes something away. Someone hurts me, stabs me in the back, does something to really pain me. And then again, I have two choices. I can either try to ruin an opportunity of theirs or ruin their reputation or hope or make sure that they suffer the same thing I suffered, right? You have that choice. But when you make the other person pay, especially relationally, there's a huge problem. As you make that person pay for the debt that they owe you, you end up becoming just like them. Cold-hearted, hardened, causing pain and suffering. Essentially then, in the end, evil wins. But the alternative, which is to forgive rather than making them pay, which isn't just like, oh, I'm not mad at them anymore. Oh, I'm just going to leave them alone. They can do their thing and, you know, they can go ahead and have a good life and I'm just going to live mine. To forgive is whenever vengeance comes, whenever thoughts of redemption or, you know, re you know, vengeance comes, you say no to it and you try to love the other and do what's best for them. But here's the thing that gets us. To love and to forgive in this way, it hurts. Because the reason you're forgiving them in the first place is because they've hurt you. 
And you got to absorb the hurt that they, do, they did to you without making, they, making them pay in its utter agony. And worse, when you forgive this way, the way we're supposed to, then you absorb the hurt. But that's the only way you can make things right. See, if someone wrongs you and you want vengeance and you confront them, and you say, hey, you did this to me, remember? you got to make up for it. What you're doing is you're out to hurt them. And they know that you're out to hurt them. So what? guess what? They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to fix their ways. They're not going to do anything to change. And so when you want to try to make them pay for this, then all you're doing is perpetuating the cycle of vengeance. But to forgive is to pay the cost. And when you do, the other person just might listen and see their ways and change. Why? Because you've loved them. As one day said this morning, we owe Jesus a debt. Our sin is the debt. We've wronged Jesus. We've wronged God. We haven't listened from the very beginning. We don't love the way we're supposed to. We don't live the way that we're ought to. We treat others the way that they are not created for. And all this means that someone has to pay the debt that we're creating all over the place. And the only one that can pay it is Jesus. And the only way for him to actually pay it is to willingly and knowingly suffer and die. A must dying. Because again, if Jesus were to go into Jerusalem and get accidentally caught and then die and then rise again, he's not paying for anything. to actually pardon us of our sin. Jesus must suffer, he must be rejected, and he must be killed so that he doesn't enter into the cycle of hate and violence and vengeance over and over and over again, which is what we do so often. Reason number two. Without the cross, death isn't actually defeated. As I've said, Jesus couldn't have actually just died. Only a payment and a giving of a life willingly is the ultimate sacrifice for which sin can be pardoned. But also, the reason why death and the cross is necessary for Jesus to be Jesus is because it reveals a major truth about the world that we live in. Notice at whose hands Jesus is killed. Do you notice? Notice the people who capture him, try him, and kill him. It's the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, a.k.a. pastors, elders, and leaders of the church, a.k.a. me, Goose, and all of your volunteer teachers and all of your elders in the church. We are the ones who grabbed Jesus, tried him unfairly, and then we killed him. Jesus doesn't die at the hands of lawless criminals and felons, quite the opposite. The very people chosen and trusted to protect the people from the lawless, to guide them into holy living, the ones who are held to uphold justice. They're the ones who conspire to commit an act of injustice by condemning Jesus to death. Jesus doesn't die accidentally. He was accused, tried in court multiple times, and then condemned to death on the cross. What Jesus' death shows is that the world is corrupt, it's oppressive, it's violent. And it's ruthless. Anyone who studied history will attest to this. That's how every kingdom works and operates. Anyone who reads the news this week, clearly this is a world we live in. We as people are capable of anything. The world is so broken and this is so true. 
And so because of the way the world is, because we're so corrupt and oppressive and ruthless and violent, Jesus must die because Jesus never will ever fight fire with fire because to do that accomplishes absolutely nothing. To win using fear as a tactic, to win using fear as a weapon is to accomplish nothing at all. And of course, as you and I know, the greatest thing, the greatest thing we fear is death, which means the threat of death becomes our greatest weapon as human beings. And to use death as a weapon accomplishes nothing. The corrupt powers of the world have many, many tools and weapons they can use to gain people's control, and death is the biggest one that they wield. When you know that someone can kill you, then you are most afraid of that person. And because you're afraid, you give them the control that they want, and you will let them control you. So Jesus knows this. And so Jesus realizes he can't win through that way. He can't win fighting fire with fire. He must win through losing. Jesus doesn't raise up an army to tear down a corrupt regime. He doesn't take up power and go in there. But rather, he gives up the power. Jesus walks into Jerusalem and says, you can kill me. It ain't nothing, because I am greater than death, he says. Your greatest weapon stands no chance against me. Tim Keller says, on the cross then, the world's misuse and glorification of power was exposed for what it is and defeated. The spell of the world's system was broken. We sing it because we know Jesus rose from the dead. We know that if we cling to him, the worst thing that could possibly happen to us, which is death, ends up becoming the best thing because it puts us in God's arms and makes us everything we had ever hoped to be it's why we sing death has lost its sting it holds no power we're going to sing it right after I finish preaching death can only be defeated by a king who takes death on loses to it and says it ain't got nothing on me because I can rise whenever I want to and gets up and walks right out and said death To take on the greatest weapon and to defeat it so nonchalantly in some ways is the way Jesus wins. Without the cross, death isn't defeated. It just perpetuates more death. Third reason then why the cross is a must is that without the cross, then true love doesn't exist. Every one of you in here, and especially those of you who from little have grown up in um, good homes or even broken homes, actually, Y'all know the difference between real love and fake love, right? Fake love is this. It's when someone loves you but uses you to fulfill their happiness. It's when someone loves you because you affirm them and meet their needs. But we all know that love is conditional. That love is conditional. Because once you stop affirming them, they stop loving you. Or if your love isn't affirming, if you're not giving all that much back to them, they hold back. You're only making them feel this good, so they only give you this much. This fake love allows the other person to cut out at any time. Because they're only in it as long as you're in it. But true love is very different, isn't it? True love, you give. You expend of yourself. All for the happiness of the other because your greatest joy is the joy of the other. And because of that, you hold nothing back. You go full tilt and you give everything away. 
You know the difference between fake and true love. But we as human beings have a major problem. And the problem is that no single human being is capable of fully and always giving this love. Maybe in spurts, maybe in bits and pieces, but never fully. And worse, every single one of us in this room and every human being on the planet is desperate for this love. It's the air we breathe. It's the thing we seek for the most. This real love is universally recognized by everyone as the thing that people want and therefore wish they had more of. And therefore people go to extreme lengths to find it. Whatever they can grab onto that kind of seems like it, anyone, anything, anywhere, you go to try to find it. And if you're understanding this, then we're all desperate for something that we can't actually get and can't actually give. Which means that if you're following the logic, then it means that we're all desperate for something. It means that our love is at all times somewhat fake. Why? Because you're looking for people who can affirm you. When's the last time you love someone that can't give nothing to you? We only invest in the people that give us something back. Which means that in the end, we're not actually loving them not fully, and we're definitely loving them partly for what we are getting from them. See, then this is the situation that we're in. It's why no human relationship will ever satisfy us the way that we need to be, no matter how great that other person is. And so what we need then is someone who loves us but doesn't need us. Someone who loves us unconditionally, radically, and most importantly, for our sake and nothing else. And if you and I, if we receive that love, our life changes. Our values are secured. We're filled up and then we're finally actually beginning to truly love someone else. And the only one who can give this love, you know the answer, it's Jesus. Why? Because he's had it from the very beginning. It's called the Trinity. People have asked me many times, why does God create us? And then later redeem us at such a great cost when he doesn't need us, doesn't make any sense. And the answer is, is because he loves us perfectly. And the only way we know that this love is real is that he must suffer. It's the only way it proves it. Because to know that he was going to suffer and to do it anyway proves without a shadow of a doubt that he loves you. Accidental death doesn't accomplish anything. Last and fourth, without the cross, we, you and I, aren't actually free. Notice the second half of the passage we haven't talked about yet. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Not only is Jesus a king that must go to the cross, through this, Jesus is telling us that not, not only am I the king that goes across, since you are a person who's trying to follow me, you have to go to the cross too. And this language isn't kidding around. The cross isn't some euphemism for something. The word life here and losing the life or saving the life is the Greek word for psyche. It's where we get psychology. It means identity, personality, selfhood. It makes, it's the word with which we get what makes you, you. Jesus isn't saying, you know what, I want you to lose your sense of self. No, 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 he's not saying that. But what Jesus is saying is, I want you to not build your identity on the things of the world. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
But here's why Jesus is saying this. Jesus says this because he knows that in every culture, the world has told you and I, that the way you get happiness is to get stuff, to gain stuff. And every culture is different. In the Korean culture, it's more like family stability. It's a social awareness, one thing. In American culture, it's individuality. Go get yours, do your thing, and get your stuff. Get your accomplishments, your successes, and whatnot. For many of you, it's the good grades, it's a good college, it's a good job, it's a good marriage, it's a good family, it's a good house, it's a success at work, it's a certain kind of work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But all of it is performance-based. It's achievement-based. The more you get, the happier you are, they tell you. But Jesus knows this will never work. No matter how many things you gain, it's never going to be enough to make you sure and secure of who you are. Because everything in the world is temporary. It fades, doesn't it? All your relationships will fade and or die. Your career and your stuff will indeed fade and or die and is never enough. I'm reminded of Sean White, the Olympic gold medalist. He's the greatest snowboarder snowboarder the world has ever seen. He's invented tricks that no one has ever done. He's done things that no one has ever done, and yet he was fourth in Sochi four years ago, and he's been quoted as saying it literally killed him almost. He could not shake the nightmare of not meddling in Sochi, even for Sean White, the greatest snowboarder the world has ever seen. Never enough. No matter how much you gain, it's never enough. So Jesus is telling us to find a new way. He's saying, I want you to lose the old self and base yourself and your identity on me and the gospel. And I love how Jesus says, if you lose yourself for, the, for my sake and the gospels, you will gain it. And I love how he says that because he's not saying, what he's saying is that we can't just say, oh, I love God and I want to live for him. Because as all of you know, many of you have said it, but we don't really know what that means does it? God, in many ways, can be abstract in this way. But to base our life on the gospel means that we must go to the cross, too. Because the gospel is the good news of Jesus and the cross. Jesus went to the cross, losing his identity for three days so that we could gain ours, which means that we must lose our identity to gain our real identity. C.S. Lewis says this. It will be on the screen. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way, And let him, God, take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity, that's your genes and your family, by my upbringing, by my surroundings, and by my natural desires. In fact, then, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events I never started and I cannot stop. What you and I think of myself isn't really myself. It's only the combination of all the stuff that's happened to you that you've never had control over in the first place. It's also the combination of things that you've been taught or you've been convinced that you like and or want. Look at Peter. He hears that Jesus is headed for Jerusalem for suffering and for death. He's furious. Why? Because... He can't handle the fact that Jesus isn't going to do what he wants Jesus to do. Peter wants victory. Peter wants, you know, conquest. Peter wants all these things, but Peter does not want Jesus to suffer. And so when Jesus does not work to his agenda, Peter then rebukes, curses out Jesus, essentially. And what this means, then, is that for Peter, Jesus isn't really king, but he's just a thing he wants Jesus. He's just a thing that he wants to use to get what he wants. Because you see, if Jesus is really king, 
Could Peter even ever dream of telling the king what to do? No, that's not the definition of king. If Jesus is really king, our only response should be, king, command me. I will do whatever you want me to do because you're king. That's how it works. You don't negotiate with the king. But again, you must never forget that Jesus isn't your normal king. He's a king going to a cross. See, a normal king makes people submit to them because they have to or you die. Do as I say when you die. But a king on a cross allows people to submit to him and to follow him out of love and trust. Because once you see a love like the one you see on the cross, it changes you. Again, Jesus knew he was going to die for you, for me. And he did not stop it. He did not halt it. He did not delay it. He let it happen to love you and to prove that you are loved. You see a love like this and it changes your perspective because it changes your own value and your own security. It changes and it shows you that you are valued, that you are beloved, that you are uniquely worth, not based on anything you do, how you look, how you behave, or how much you achieve, just because you itself are you. And this frees you, doesn't it? Truly frees you. Because I, and I hope you, will want to follow a king like that. Because now your identity Your approach to your own self-identity has nothing to do with what you gain or what you achieve, what you have or you have not, or you do or you don't. It's based on the fact that the king goes to the cross, losing his identity so that you can have yours. And so you and I simply submit and say, God, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. Whatever you give, I will receive and accept. Because when someone gives himself so utterly for you, how do you not give yourself utterly back? to him. So to take up the cross means that you lose your self-identity driven by your determination and your need to control your own life and to gain things. You die to your own agenda and you trust that God's way is the right way. It's you and I saying there are some, it's Jesus, it's basically what Jesus is saying is there's some of you, oh sorry, Jesus says later in chapter 9-1, he says there's some of you who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come in power. And what Jesus is referring to is the resurrection, isn't he? Because three days later, before any of them had died, they saw the kingdom come in power. Here's, I, here's where I finish, and I invite the praise team back up. The kingdom of God began in weakness. Jesus came as a little baby into the hands of a carpenter, a poor family from Galilee. The kingdom began in weakness. Jesus goes to a cross. That's weakness. And Jesus is saying, your life, you gain it by losing it. You give up your need for control and your gaining of self-worth. That's how you start. But we know that the kingdom does not end there. It ends in power. Why? Because Jesus rises. Because Jesus is coming back to make all things new. Love and a love on the cross will totally and utterly triumph over hate and over death. I finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else is thrown in.
there has to be a cross. Because it's the only way we live. It's the only way you and I are free. Thanks be to God that there is a cross and an empty grave. I don't know how you're feeling this morning as we journey into this season of Lent. But I hope if there's one thing you gain from this is that our God loves you. And the cross proves it. So that you and I can live. So this season of Lent, brothers and sisters, will you join us as we look to the cross, the place where Jesus died, ended our sin, knowing that indeed three days later he rises so that we will all rise with him. You take a moment and pray and ask God, Lord, help me to see the cross, to know the cross. Help me to forgive, help me to love, help me to die to my own self so that you can tell me who I am and in it find freedom and joy and goodness. Will you journey to the cross with Jesus? And at his footsteps, find life everlasting and forever. So take a moment and pray and respond, and the praise team will lead us in praise team.